people who, you know, have never heard of our church and they meet me for the first time. They say, like, what church are you a part of? And I'm like, it's a church called New Philadelphia. And they will always say, what a random church. Is it in Philadelphia? And I'm like, no, it's not in Philadelphia. It's in Seoul, Korea. And then I have to like, explain to people why it's called New Philadelphia. So if you're new to our church, hopefully uh, this sermon series kind of is shedding light to why it is that we're called New Philadelphia Church. So for the last two Sundays, we went to a passage, Isaiah 43, verses 18 to 19. That's where we get the new for New Philadelphia. It talks about, um, it's, it's a passage prophesied by the prophet Isaiah, and he tells a people who are going to be banished from their land, and they'll have a chance to return about 200 years after the prophecy is given. And this is how the promise says, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. And this is such an incredible promise, even for our church. Ten years ago, when we started out with this new name, New Philadelphia, we had no idea what that meant. We didn't know that maybe perhaps 10 years later, we would need this word more than ever before. And it would mean something completely different as well. And so it's been very refreshing to go back to this passage and see what perhaps we've missed over the last 10 years from this passage. And so the first Sunday, I talked about the power of perception. Part of the verse says, do you not perceive it? Something new is happening right under your eyes, right in front of your nose, and you're not perceiving it. So the prophet Isaiah says, do you not perceive it? I'm actually doing something new, but you need to take the time to pay attention to what God is doing right before you. And then the following Sunday, so last Sunday, we talked about what uh, God making a way in the desert meant. And so we went through that portion of that same passage last week. This week, we'll move into the Philadelphia portion. So we kind of dealt with a new part. And now we're going to be dealing with the Philadelphia portion. And it's not just because it's a city. And it's not just because a former pastor was from Philadelphia. It's actually from the Bible. So if you turn with me to the book of Revelation book of Revelation chapter three. I'll have some slides up for you, but I actually do want you guys to, you know, have the word right in front of you because we're going to be jumping back and forth a lot. So book of Revelation chapter three, book of Revelation chapter three. Revelation is the very last book of the Bible. Book of Revelation chapter three. And just to give you a little bit of background on this portion of the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ himself, so not through somebody else, but Jesus Christ himself addresses seven different churches in his time. And it's different churches in different cities. And he has very specific things to tell them. I don't know about you guys, but if Jesus had something to say very specifically about my church, I would pay full attention. Like it's not just, you know, a a different pastor or a different minister or even a different prophet, but it's coming from the mouth of Jesus himself. So if you look in your Bibles, it should be in red text, right? It's in red text because it's verbatim what Jesus says to these churches. So book of Revelation chapter three, verses seven through 13. And this is, I'm going to be reading from the NIV. This is how it reads to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write: These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds, 
See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, very nice words, who proclaim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Amen. So just to recap, a couple of weeks ago, what we talked about was God opening up a way in the desert, streams in the wasteland, something that was impenetrable and hostile and filled with obstacles is now wide open thanks to what God is doing in that time. In the second week, we talked about the context of Isaiah 43, a passage that is the passage that is embedded in and the prophet ties this new thing that God is doing with something that God already had done. And that is when God parted the Red Sea for the Israelites hundreds of years before that. And today we're jumping into God opening up a door before his people. So before we go into the message, I'm just going to ask us to pray. And whether this is a new passage for you or you've heard it being preached before, I'm really going to be asking that the Holy Spirit give us new revelation about what he has to say to us today as a church. So let's pray briefly. Father, we ask God that you wouldn't just open our hearts and our minds just to hear words from a person. God, would you quicken our spirit that we would hear the words of God? I pray, Father, that if there's any distraction, any overfamiliarity, any apathy, anything that would keep us from hearing your word in its full power, God, would you do away with that? And would you make us receptive to your word? Would you make us good soil where the seed of your word can take root and bear much fruit? We thank you, Father, that that is only possible through the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask for the ministry of the spirit of wisdom and revelation, God, that we would see you more rightly. We would love you more rightly. We would know your word. We would eat of the scroll. And that coming out of this place, God, we would be transformed not by just the words of a person, but we would be transformed by the words of God. We thank you, Father. We trust in what you're doing here today, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today's message is titled Open Door, if you're taking notes. Um, a few months ago, I don't know if you guys remember, because it feels like an eternity ago when we were still at SFS, at the end of February, it was this year, but it feels like so long ago, right? At the end of February of this year, we had a guest preacher come in. His name was James Lynch. He's a pastor of the Way Church. And the reason why I specifically had asked him to come in to preach to our community, it wasn't just that he was a great pastor, a great expositor, is that he had been going through the seven letters that are written in the book of Revelation. And as he was 
kind of going deep into the portion that is addressed to the church of Philadelphia, he said that he couldn't help but pray for our church. There's something that was contained in that passage that he felt very strongly was addressed to us. Even though, you know, we might think that maybe it's just a name. Like we just happened to pick up that name. We could have picked any other name, Church of Sardis, New Sardis, maybe. I don't know if we want any of the other names, by the way. And we'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk about why. But we could have picked any other name. And yet... I believe in God's sovereign, you know, uh, it's almost like he planted something 10 years ago that we wouldn't even know that we needed today. And part of it has to do with this letter that was written to the church in the city of Philadelphia. And so Pastor James Lynch, he preached on February 24th. If you guys need a review, we're kind of going to very quickly gloss over a lot of things that he mentioned. Uh, but I do uh, encourage you to maybe go on the podcast February 24th of this year. It's a really amazing message. I just re-listened to it this past week. And I was there when he preached it. And yet I was listening it to, to it again. It felt so different. Like the weight that it had, the nuance that it had, the meaning that it had. I feel like interpreting it today, hearing it and receiving it today, it felt very different in a good way. Uh, I felt like God was doing something fresh through that same word that was, um, you know, verbatim, you know, preached back in February. So if you have time, I really encourage you to listen to that once again. So as a quick review of some of the things that Pastor James, he had touched on just to give us kind of an orientation and give us a brief description of the context. Um, we need to understand a little bit about what was significant about the church of, uh, sorry, the city of Philadelphia. This is Philadelphia in Asia Minor, not Philadelphia in the States. Okay. So Philadelphia in the States was named after this other Philadelphia. This is, this is the OG Philadelphia. Okay. So the first thing that we need to know about the city was that it was known for agriculture. It had great soil with rich nutrients. So it was known for growing things quickly. Um, and, and, and I feel like in some ways I kind of relate that even with our church, we've seen like incredible growth in a really short time. We sometimes joke around and say that there's like chronological years and there's new Philly years. Like one year in New Philly is like seven years elsewhere. Um, and in that same way, I feel like there's things that happen in our community, things that we go through as a community, even things that we experience from God as a community that is very quick. That is, that is almost supernatural in its timing. And so the first thing about the city of Philadelphia that it was that it was really fertile and very rich in agricultural fruit. Second is that it was a missionary post of Hellenism to Asia Minor. So that means that the role that the city had was to take the message of Greek culture and spread it. So that was the role of the city. It wasn't just there for people to live in and grow fruit and vegetables, although that was there. Its mission, its assignment was to carry the message of a culture into different cultures. So it's missionary and quote unquote evangelistic in its nature. And the third thing was it was a very unstable city because of frequent earthquakes and volcanic activity. That was partly the reason why, number one, they, they had such rich soil is that they had so much, so many earthquakes, so much volcanic activity that that would enrich the soil. And yet it made it very hard to live there. So the people that who, who lived there, even long-term once in a while, they'd have to evacuate the city and then come back in once it was over and rebuild the city again. And then once it happened again, they would have to evacuate and come back in. This is very unfortunate that we're named after this city. <laughs> I wish we were called the church of new 
you know, green pastures and, you know, I don't know. But for whatever case, we're named after the church in this city. And I feel like it's very fitting in some ways. Yeah, we don't get a lot of different things. Perhaps we don't get as much stability as we would want. As much like, all right, we get enough time to kind of catch our breath and, you know, see where we're at. And yet, in the midst of this, God is able to cultivate something very particular that doesn't happen in different places. Does that make sense? It's not despite the instability. It's because of the instability that God is able to do something in the city. And so this is just a broad, in broad strokes, what, what the city of Philadelphia was like. Now, second thing is what kind of church was the church of Philadelphia? So the churches back then, they were not named, you know, after, you know, a, a particular brand or a name or, or anything like that. They were actually named according to the city they were in. Um, and so we would be called the Church of Seoul if we were the only church that was in the city of Seoul. The same way that the Church of Philadelphia was simply named that way because it was a church that met in the city of Philadelphia. So verse 8 in the passage that we read, it says, I know that you have little strength. Again, unfortunate that that's what we're called after, named after. You have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Just in that short little verse, the four things that we can say about this church that met in the city of Philadelphia was number one, they were obedient to the word of God. They're obedient to the word of God, regardless of what kind of culture they were embedded in, regardless of what the trends were that would come and go, regardless of what kind of new cultures would come through their city on their way to Asia Minor. It wouldn't matter. They would be steadfast in their obedience to the word of God. They didn't just know it in their minds. They also kept it in their heart and they walked it out in their lives. They're obedient to the word of God. The second thing was that they were loyal to the name of Jesus where there was so much transition and so many new names and new gods and new trends that would come in because they were an international city, they were still loyal to the name of Jesus, regardless of what would come in. The third thing was that they were persevering in the face of trials and temptations. Again, I wish I could say that we were named after something more serene and unchanging and like the church of new chill. Like the, the church of like, everything's good, you know? And yet we're not named after that. We're named after the church of Philadelphia. So there were, I, I wish I could say things are going to be super easy and chill from here on out. And yet in this city, this church would experience trials, temptations, uncertainty, persecution. And in the midst of that, instead of God showing his grace by removing those hardships, he gave them strength to endure those hardships. It's a very different kind of prayer when we go through hardships to say, God, take the pain away versus God, give me the strength to be able to walk through the pain. God, give me the strength, the faith, the trust to know that you're still there in the midst of the hardships. It's a very different kind of prayer. And this is the kind of church that the church of Philadelphia was. And lastly, they were small in size, but not in strength. So Pastor James, one of the things that he did was to clarify, it didn't mean precisely that it's that they were weaklings or they're wusses, but it meant that they actually didn't have large size as a congregation. They were actually a small congregation, but they were small in size, but not in strength. So it means that they were able to have incredible impact and endurance, even though they were a small church. 
And that is, there's something to be said about that, especially today, where there's so many trends, even within the Christian world, there's so many ways in which Christians, we will pursue um, kind of grandeur, you know, fame, perhaps, you know, we want to be like that church that has, you know, that has, you know, that amazing pastor and that amazing praise team. And man, we're exploding everywhere, planting everywhere. And that's kind of like the Christian American dream. Basically, it's just the American dream. You, you can just call it the American dream. And yet we fool ourselves into thinking, but it's Christian, but it's for the glory of God, isn't it? And so we kind of slap on the label of Christian to actually something that is more. Those who were at that Saturday morning class, the, the topic that we tackled was progress in the American dream. And we were kind of dis- dissecting where this, where this mentality that we take so for granted, and we feel like, no, we're just being objective. That's just the way things are. Of course, we are for progress and moving forward, and bigger is better, and, and we need to get out there, and there's territory for us to claim. And, and that's kind of our default, and yet we don't realize that that's actually very culturally biased. And a lot of that was you know, birthed in the Enlightenment and the Renaissance back then, and it was kind of solidified in the American frontier. And as Western culture kind of swept through the world, through globalization, that's kind of one of the the characteristic kind of traits of kind of Western culture. There's this like, let's go get, let's, let's go to new heights, new horizons, new things. There's like technology out there. There's places out there that we haven't seen uncharted territory for us to claim. And it's that kind of mentality, forward moving mentality that we take for granted, but that wasn't always the case. It's not necessarily a negative thing. It is a negative thing when the moving, the, the agent behind it is human ingenuity. If it's progress through human ingenuity, through my education, through my technology, through my new discoveries, through my way of working around challenges, if that is the the driving force behind it, then it can very quickly become detrimental. Man, I wish I could say everything we talked about yesterday, but um, one more thing, one more thing about why it's so important for us to take a fresh look at this church of Philadelphia was, I don't know if you've been following the news um, as of late, uh, especially within Christian circles. And if you've been paying attention in the last, even just the last year, we've been seeing an increase of like very public Christian figures renouncing their faith. I don't know if you've been paying attention. Sometimes it comes in the form of a megachurch pastor, you know, that is found out, you know, for, you know, immorality or something like that, moral failure. And then something that looked like an unstoppable movement all of a sudden crumbles because this one person crumbled. We see that even most recently in the last few weeks, two major figures in, in, in the Christian circles. If, if you were raised, you know, in, in the Christian circles in the 90s and early 2000s did who here read i kissed dating goodbye all right so oh not that many of us oh dang it <laughs> we kissed dating goodbye dang it um everybody else was dating <laughs> we kissed there okay got it uh you guys are smarter but anyway so the the, the writer the the author behind this book and it wasn't just a book it was an entire movement 
Um, so the writer of, of this book, the author of this book, very recently renounces faith. And the reason why um, it, it kind of sent shockwaves through the Christian circles is that he was such an influential and very public person, like a Christian leader within Christian circles. And then the second one that happened pretty recently was someone by the name of Marty Sampson. He wrote a bunch of songs for Hillsong. And so that's one of the most recent ones. And I'm not going to, we're not going to dissect that. We're not going to talk at length about these two people and they have their own reasoning, their own journey behind it. And so we're not going to go really in depth with that. But if there's anything that we should kind of take away from this is that even the things that look like, man, they are on the right track. Man, there's nothing stopping that church. There's nothing stopping that person. There's nothing stopping that minister. We don't know that. We don't know what kind of journey, what kind of turns, what kind of hardships, what kind of ways things are going to pan out. And so for us to think like, of course, I'm going to be on the right journey. Of course, I'm going to be on the right track. Of course, I'm always going to be, you know, burning for the Lord. I'm always going to be, you know, zealous for my spiritual growth. That's not always the case. And for us to assume that is actually quite dangerous. I'm not saying let's be paranoid. Like, oh my gosh, I didn't have my QT today. Like, I must not be going to heaven. I'm not saying paranoia, but I'm saying let's not assume that just because somebody looks like they're on the right track, that's actually the case. And so for a climate like this, where we're seeing incredible ministries and figures and movements that are actually not as robust as we think they are, as we see these things slowly crumbling here and there, maybe a certain pastor that you knew or a certain movement or a church, or, you know, whatever it is, um, these things that, that seemed like, like, man, they're going to make it to the coming of Christ. Like, I can't imagine them, you know, dwindling down anytime soon. Even those things are able to crumble. And in the midst of that kind of culture, and we're entering into more and more of this, where all you see on Instagram and, and, and social media is not always true, being obedient to the word of God long-term, being loyal to the name of Jesus long-term, persevering in the face of trials and temptations and setbacks and detours and disappointments long-term, and not caring about the size or the impact that you have, but actually, is there substance there? Is there genuine faith there? This is so much more important today, today for us because this is a kind of spiritual climate that we live in. So we have so much to learn from the Church of Philadelphia, perhaps more than ever before. Moving on, so this is the kind of, the church, the kind of church that it was. I want us to camp out here for a while because I feel like there's something that God wants to speak to us today from, from the promises that Jesus gave to this church. The first promise that he gave to the church, this church in particular, was a reward instead of judgment. Now, let me tell you, the church of Philadelphia, out of the seven churches that, was addressed in, that were addressed in the book of Revelation, it is the only one of the seven that was addressed by Jesus that didn't receive a rebuke per se. So the church of Ephesus was rebuked for having forgotten her first love. The church of Pergamum was rebuked for compromising their doctrine and their morality. The church of Thyatira was rebuked for allowing uh, a woman Jezebel to lead them into sexual immorality. The church of Sardis was rebuked for having reputation of being alive. And yet they were actually dead. 
and they need to wake up and repent. The church of Laodicea was rebuked for being like lukewarm water that wasn't good for anything. Instead of going to God with their need, they were arrogant and self-sufficient. And, and these are all the other churches. And yet the church of Philadelphia stands alone in that instead of Jesus saying, you better repent lest I come to you with judgment and remove your lampstand. The church of Philadelphia was the only church that he said, I am coming soon with a reward. So this is a one church that was promised a reward instead of judgment. There was something that they were doing right, whether you could see it on the outside or not. Whether they were like in a mega metropolis and they were having all these crusades and all these, you know, releasing these albums, whatever the case was, this small but powerful church was the one church that Jesus didn't rebuke. And he said, I'm coming to you with a reward instead of judgment. The second promise that Jesus gave this church was permanence in God's presence. So if we look at our text in verse 12, um, Jesus says to a church in a city that was known for earthquakes, volcanic activity, constant evacuation, rebuilding and evacuation and rebuilding and evacuation and rebuilding this kind of city, this kind of church. He says that he'll make them pillars, a symbol of permanence and strength, not just anywhere, but the temple of my God. And you will never have to leave it. You might need to leave your city to evacuate. You might need to deal with all the instability, all the changes all around you. And yet you're going to be a pillar in my temple. You're going to be a permanent fixture in my presence. And here's the thing about pillars. Pillars aren't just decorative. They're not just like, yes, I'm a symbol of strength. And they just stand there. No, they're actually holding something. They're holding the weight of something else. It's not just that they look pretty. It would be nice to have a pillar right here. No, they're actually... With, they can withstand shaking, they can remain there, but also they provide support for others. They hold the weight for others. So permanence and strengthen God's presence. Third promise that he gives them, if we look at verse 10, Jesus says, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on earth. For those who have endured patiently, there is a preservation in the midst of global shakings, not through their own strength, but through the strength of him who holds them fast. There's preservation through trials that is promised to this church. Fourth, there's vindication from enemies. If we look at verse nine, that's kind of the uncomfortable verse, right? Verse 9, it says that there are those from the synagogue of Satan that are liars, and God will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that God has loved you. God has loved this church. It doesn't say that they will acknowledge, they'll fall at the church's feet, and they'll acknowledge that, man, you guys are awesome. Man, you guys were right all along. No, it says that they're going to come, and they will acknowledge the goodness and the mercy, the strength and the provision of the Lord over this church. There's a witness of God's arm of justice and mercy present in this church where even their enemies will eventually have to admit that whether they agree with them or not, the one thing that is clear for sure is that God is looking after this community. 
God is the one who's preserving this community. He has been good. He's been faithful, merciful, and he is the one to whom they belong. So that, that's the one thing that will be said of them. I don't know about you guys, but that is pretty darn awesome to me. Like, I would love to be, yes, known all over the city as a, as a church that, you know, has this and has that and does this right. And, man, you feel he's great. But, man, what if our testimony to the city was simply like, I don't know what that church is called, but, man, their God is amazing. Their God is faithful. Their God is a provider, a redeemer, a restorer. I don't even know what their name is. But, man, they love this man, Jesus. Wouldn't that be an amazing testimony in this kind of city? Perhaps in a city that trumpets everybody's own name, everybody's own brand. And yet this city and this church in the city of Philadelphia, the reason why their enemies would come to them is simply to acknowledge, I don't know what you're called. Maybe I think they didn't even have a name, but whatever it is that you believe in, but like the God that you worship must be real and he's good and he's merciful. And that's the kind of testimony that they have in the city, even from their enemies. The fifth promise that is given to this church is belonging instead of namelessness. So verse 12 says that Jesus will write on those who overcome. He's going to write on them God's name, his city's name, and the new name that Christ will have upon his return. So without going really deep into what, what, what that means, all I need to say is that this small church, perhaps not of really wide repute, perhaps they wonder what good can come out of such a small little gathering. God says, you belong to me. The name that is written on you is my name. You are mine. Your enemies will know that I have loved you. Your witness will be not one of your own glory, not your own fame, not your own brand, but it's going to be my name. And isn't that what we desire as a church? I don't really care if God, if people know the name of the small gathering here in Yangji. What I do care is that the city and this nation and perhaps even the nations beyond that they would know the name of Jesus the name that is above every other name, that everything we do wouldn't go unto our glory, but it would go to his, that he would get the credit, he would get the reputation, he would get the worship, and he would get the glory. And this is how God almost like stamps his name on this church. He says, on you, you who have overcome, you who are persevering in all these circumstances of instability and shaking, on you, I'm going to write my own name, and you will be known as mine. And lastly, Jesus promises them an open door that no man can shut. This is in verse 7 and 8. Jesus first defines himself. First of all, he says, I'm the guy, not only who's holy and who's true, but I also hold all authority. I hold the key of David. And what I open, no man can shut. And what I shut, no man can open. So what I do and what I say is done is as good as done. And then out of his mouth, he says, I know your deeds and see this word should kind of have a red flag already. See, behold, perceive, right? See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. An open door that no man can shut. Three things that this could mean. The first thing, kind of going along with the previous passage that we were going through, is access to something previously obstructed. In the same way that the Red Sea was shut up for the Israelites pursued by their enemies, and it opened up the same way that the return 
to Jerusalem from Babylonian captivity seemed impossible until God opened up a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. God opens up a door that no amount of persecution, no amount of lack of resources or manpower or influence or cultural pressure can shut. God opens up this door that no man, no power, no principality can shut. This little church and this missionary outpost for Greek culture is given access to freely trumpet, not just the, not the message of Greek culture, but the message of the cross, the resurrection and the returning king. They have access to something that was shut for them before. The second thing is entry into something new. This is a little bit obvious, but if you see an open door that God has opened for you, it's not for you to kind of like look at it and be like, cool, that's nice. That's an open door. No, it's an invitation, right? If there's an open door that no man can shut and God has opened it for you, it's an invitation for you to actually step through it. Step through it. Perhaps they are unsure of what they accomplish, but what they could accomplish. Perhaps they're unsure of whether they'll be well-received or successful in their assignment. Whatever the case be, Jesus himself beckons them to step through the threshold and enter through this open door into something they haven't experienced before. So it's not just an open door for decorative purposes or look at this new trick that I can do. No, it's an open door for you to actually walk through and it's going to require faith. It's going to require courage. It's going to require you believing that God is something new for you. And lastly, it's an invitation to greater revelation. The reason why I say that it's an invitation to greater revelation, I'm, I'm not just saying because it rhymes, although it does. It is because only a few verses later, we see this concept of an open door at the beginning of Revelation chapter 4. And this is how it reads. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And this is the open invitation for the apostle John who is receiving all these words for the seven churches, God says, I don't want you to just receive my words and write these things down. I actually want you to come up here and see my unveiled glory. That's the open door that was opened for John. The unveiled glory of God. If you guys read through chapter four and five, this is immediately after the, the letters to the seven churches. You see John undone by the unveiled glory of God. Like he doesn't even have words to express what he's looking at. This is the same God that gave me those letters for the seven churches. The same God that has been listening to every word that I speak. This is the same God that will receive all the worship from every nation. This is the same God that holds these seven churches in his hands. And he gets a fresh revelation of who this God is. And it's not just like there's God sitting there. No, he's surrounded by 24 seven worship. There's creatures and angels and elders and all of creation. They're crying out in unison unto the glory of this God. This is the kind of God that we are being given an open invitation to encounter afresh. That's what an open door does. It's not just an open door into an opportunity or even into a new endeavor. Perhaps it's an open door to encounter someone afresh. Encounter God afresh. 
So these are quite the promises given to a small church that has but few numbers. And yet, the little that they do is simply to remain obedient to the word, faithful to the name of Jesus, and persevering in the midst of trials. These are amazing promises to a church that is simply faithful to the name. Now, I can't say much about them. I don't know. I don't know what kind of impact they had in their city. I don't know, you know, what kind of outreach ministries or what their finances look like or how many, you know, did they have children's ministry? Did they have, you know, youth group? I don't know any of these things. But the one thing that I do know and the one thing that Jesus seems to care about is that, man, they're faithful to my name. Regardless of their circumstances, regardless of the shakings, regardless of any of these things, they have stood fast in the midst of it all, and they have not denied my name. That seems to be what God really cares about. So this is part of a greater narrative, and this is where I'm going to kind of zoom out a little bit. We've seen this picture before. This is the picture that kind of describes what the passage from Isaiah 43, it's, it's addressed to these people who were leaving in captivity from their city going up in flames, and one day they would return. The story of the people of God isn't just about people who are given the strength to endure exile and captivity and hardship, but it's also the story of a people who taste and see the deliverance of their God. That's not the full story. The hardship, the strength, the perseverance, that's not the full story. Yes, there's strength. Yes, there's perseverance. But they also taste and see the deliverance and the salvation of their God. Those who experience a homecoming of sorts. And it isn't just about coming back to physical place, but even to the person of God. So pretty recently, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this picture. It's a really famous picture. City of Jerusalem. Israeli paratroopers who actually get to see and touch the Western Wall in the city of Jerusalem for the first time in 1967 after a six-day war. And I've read some of these accounts, first-hand accounts, of what it was like for them to have fought and to have believed and known that somewhere out there is where the glory of God once dwelt. But then for them to come face-to-face with where the Holy of Holies once used to be, and these accounts were like, destroy you. Like grown men who are like in full army gear, still probably holding, you know, their, their, their guns and stuff. They break down and weep in front of this wall. It's not just because it's a wall. It's because to them, it's something very different. It is something that they've been belonging for, for generations. And that is the presence of God. That they actually get to touch where the glory of God once used to dwell. And something about that is just so, that, that longing that has been passed on generation to generation, they weren't there when the temple was there. And yet something was passed on this longing to draw near to God, to cry out to God once again, to be heard by this God, to be brought back home to God. That is still there. This makes me think, of Psalm 126. This is a song of ascents. It means that this is what they used to sing as the Israelites are kind of making a progression towards the temple. This is what they would say. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed, like they couldn't believe their eyes. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. 
Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, O oh God, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. And he who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him, meaning carrying the harvest with him. This is, this is what they would sing as they would approach the temple to worship their God. And isn't that a picture of what homecoming towards God looks like as we draw near to him? It's not just a place. It's not just a building. It's getting closer to a person, getting closer to their God. This is why this is important. Because if we become, we become so short-sighted and myopic in what is happening in my life right now, what is happening in the church right now, what is happening in my city right now, we become so short-sighted and we forget that we are part of a vastly bigger and much more hopeful narrative of what God is doing through his church. We sometimes miss the mark. And sometimes we tend to allow discouragement, allow disappointment, allow hopelessness to settle in. This is what a British theologian wrote about the Christian narrative that spans the entirety of human history. And his name is Leslie Newbigin. Regardless of what circumstances, what cultural context, what year they were born, what kind of, you know, circumstances were around them, regardless of that, this is what he says about the Christian church. The distinguishing mark of this community will be hope. Within the community whose plausibility structure, I don't have time to explain that, um, is shaped by the biblical story, there is a clear vision of the goal of this history. Namely, the reconciliation of all things with Christ as head. And the assurance, not only that that is the goal, but that it will be reached. Hopeful action means having something to which one can confidently look forward. It means having a horizon. That horizon is defined in the words, he shall come again. For a Christian, the horizon for all action is this. It is advent rather than future. He is coming to meet us. And whatever we do, whether it is our most private prayers or our most public political action is simply offered to him for whatever place it may have in his blessed kingdom. Here's the clue to meaningful action in meaningful history. It is the translation into action of the prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done as in heaven, so on earth. This is what the Christian narrative is all about. This is, we're somewhere in that story. We're somewhere in the sweep of history there. Somewhere along there, we're part of this narrative of hope. And the narrative of hope says, no matter what it is that you're going through presently, it is nothing but a temporary and brief affliction. And there's attaining for you. It's attaining for your glory that is going to last forever. In the midst of what you're experiencing right now, you need to remember there's a God who's kind of reigning over this entire narrative. And he will see to it that history will reach where it needs, uh, will reach the point and the goal that it's going to go. So let me close with this. Perhaps we can have the praise team come back up. Let me close with this. And this is 
somewhat related to what we were talking about in yesterday's class. I know that, you know, most of you weren't there. And so I'll do my best to kind of fill in the holes. We as a church, we've been going through a long season of healing. And a part of coming out of a season of great emotional and spiritual turmoil is that we get prone to act out of overreaction. We get prone to become very me-focused. We get prone to say, you know what? Forget the church. Forget God. I just got to take care of myself. Like I've done that. I tried that. And it, you know, it went really badly. So now I just got to fend for my own self. I got to get mine. You know, I need to get fed. I need to be taken care of. I need to be served. And this is just simply an overreaction for people who might be hurting. This is not where you want to land. This is not how you can have a church community. And that is simply to act out of overreaction, perhaps to hurt, perhaps to a very tumultuous last season. So as, be, as we've been studying the impact of postmodern thought, the way that our generation thinks and the way that we see the world, the way that we see ourselves, one of the things that we talked about yesterday was this, the, the great, you know, the kind of fleeting, you can almost grab it, and yet it seems to escape you, the American dream. This, like, future promised land somewhere out there. And it's really interesting to study the history behind it. In in a book written by um, this scholar, and he's not even Christian, he's would describe himself as an atheist with Jewish background. This is how he would map it out in the history of the United States. And this is written in a book called The Real American Dream, A Meditation of Hope. And this is, again, written by someone who's not a Christian. And he said that at the very beginning of American history, the reason why many people would actually get on a ship never to come back from Europe was with this idea of a God who needed to be, who needed to be told about to other nations. So this idea of God... This is who we serve. This is what it's all about. It's this idea of this is our identity. This is our framework. This is the reason why we do what we do. And it's God. And somewhere along the lines of history, that became replaced by this idea of nation. And you see this, particularly in American history, you see this, how patriotism is equal to godliness where you see flags at the very front of churches, where, where desecrating a flag or, 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 or being disrespectful to your nation, it is almost sacrilegious. Like you're touching something sacred, and that's the way that it's perceived. Where nation now becomes synonymous to God. This is what you fight for. This is what you die for. This is what you build towards, and this idea of a nation. And over time, as there was more and more disappointment, and they saw that this idea, this abstract idea of nation doesn't seem to fulfill my dreams, my purpose, it quickly became substituted with self. And this is kind of where American culture is at, according to this scholar. Like everything that I'm living for, everything that, you know, I am putting my energy, my finances, my career towards itself. 
I want to serve myself. It, it starts and ends with me. And this is talking about the course of a nation. And as I was reading this, part of me couldn't help but make that parallel. And I was wondering, is this kind of what has happened even to church, even in, in our context? A small microcosm, of course. Like we're at the beginning, we started with this idea of like, no matter where, like how many times we meet, no matter how far it is, no matter like how many hills I got to climb up, I'm going to worship God. And it was about God. Like you're not there to meet your friends. You're there to meet God first and then your friends. But it was God. The reason why I pray, I attend service is, is to encounter God. It was this idea of I'm going to mold my life around God. And over the years, it quickly became replaced, perhaps not with nation, but with church. The reason why I do this is for the glory of New Philly. The reason why I do this is for the reputation of New Philly. The reason why I do this is because I want to build up this church. And although that's noble, it's not the same as God. You understand? It is noble, and yet it's not the same as doing it because you want to draw closer to God. And eventually, as this kind of big amorphous, abstract, collective entity of New Philly, we experienced a very big shaking in the last couple of years. It quickly is getting replaced by self, where it is, the reason why I want to come into church is because I want to be served. And I'm not, I'm not saying this in a really harsh way, but this is where inevitably I feel like we're going to land unless we take heed where church will very quickly become about if it's not meeting my needs, if it's not meeting the time that I want, it's not meeting the place that I want, if I'm not in the house church that I want, if we're not, they're not preaching about the things that I'm interested in, then why? Why go there? And it very quickly will become about self. Even in our, and I'm going to say this very carefully, even in our best intentions in pursuing self-love and health, emotional health, if it's not against the backdrop of the whole point of this is to love God better, to glorify him better, to live a life that is worthy of his name better. If it's not about that, then it can very quickly become about, man, I just, I just need to be healthy. I just need to know, do some things like things that don't stress me out. I need to surround myself with people that don't stress me out. I need to make sure that my needs are met before anybody else's. It can very quickly degrade to that. Something as noble as wanting to take care of yourself. And that is something that is godly and yet not ultimate. Does that make sense? Godly, but not ultimate. That's not an end in itself. And so I feel like this is, this is part of what is ahead for us. This is how Andrew Del Banco, he says it. The history of hope I've tried to sketch in this book is one of diminution. So, you know, steadily growing smaller. At first, the self expanded toward and was sometimes overwhelmed by the vastness of God. And then, from the early republic to the great society, it remained implicated in a national ideal, so nation, lesser than God, but larger and more enduring than any individual citizen. Today, hope has narrowed to the vanishing point of the self alone. The modern self tries to compensate with posturing and competitive self-display as it feels itself more and more cut off from anything substantial or enduring. It breaks down 
under the bombardment by images that merge fantasy with reality or by advertising that becomes news. In such a world, it is impossible to distinguish foreground from background or the spurious from the authentic. Here we arrive at the root of our postmodern melancholy. We live in an age of unprecedented wealth, but in the realm of narrative and symbol, we are deprived. It's a very long-winded way of saying living for self will never satisfy. It will never satisfy, no matter what kind of good intentions you have. It's not going to satisfy. Even living for a church, it's not going to satisfy either. It's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to break down sooner or later. It's going to have its rises. It's going to have its falls. But living for a church will not satisfy either. The only one thing that will satisfy permanently, that will give you significance, that will bring meaning to the portion of, of the journey that you're walking through right now is living for God. And I believe that's the kind of invitation that we have as a church as well to really go back to that place. Are we going to build a church for the sake of building a church? Are we going to do programs for the, for, the, for, the, for the goal of just feeding myself and meeting my needs? Or is it really going to be about God? I'm not saying they're mutually exclusive, but I'm saying that the priorities need to be super clear in our mind. If this is really going to be a church that glorifies one name, not your name and not the name of this church, but the name of God, then our priorities need to be set straight. And this is the invitation that we have as a church. As we're going through this formative state, we're, we're deciding what kind of church we want to become. Is it going to be a church that serves self? or selves the brand of New Philly? Or is it going to be a church that genuinely serves the name of God? Is that going to be our witness? Is that going to be a reputation in the city? Are people going to look at this church and say, I know what they're doing there, but man, they love God. And God is faithful, merciful, compassionate to them. He's carried them through that season. And we've seen them come through it. God can do anything. That's the kind of witness that would, I would love this church to have, a church that celebrates, trumpets the name of Jesus.